Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Hey, Jordan Harbinger here. Subscribe to the only show that will show you how to apply the world's greatest ideas from the most striking minds. After presenting more than a thousand interviews, I couldn't be more compelled to introduce you to the Jordan Harbinger Show. We've got spies and CEOs, athletes and authors from Kobe Bryant to Malcolm Gladwell, Tony Hawk and Howie Mandel to the chairman of Google, founders of LinkedIn and Instagram, antiquities smugglers, con men, brilliant scientists, national heroes, and even the head of the CIA. Listed as Apple's best of 2018 and countless other awards that, let's be honest, you probably don't care about right now. So come and have a listen for yourself and join me as we exploit the superpowers of the world's most incredible thinkers, amazing achievers, and iconic change makers with their insights delivered right into your mind. You'll get that blueprint of their brilliance each week so that you can learn to live what you listen. Subscribe right now to The Jordan Harbinger Show, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you're listening now. Napa know-how. At Napa Auto Parts stores and Napa Auto Care centers, get a $25 prepaid Visa card when you get any Napa automotive battery. It's the best deal for some of the best batteries from some of the best car people around. But we might be a little partial. Anywho, pick up any Napa automotive battery and save 25 bucks. Do it yourself or have it done for you. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. At participating Napa Auto Parts stores and Napa Auto Care Centers. While supplies last, offer ends 831 Hello, everyone, and welcome back for a brand new episode of The Witching Hour. You know me, you know Haley, and hopefully at this point, you also know the third person on this episode of the show. We have writer-director Issa Lopez here. How are you doing? I'm very happy to be here, and uh, and uh, I love it that it's called The Witching Hour, and it's three of us, and it feels a little East Wiki, which <laughs> I'm in for, so good. <laughs> I feel like Haley deserves more credit for this title than I do. Oh, gosh. I feel like that was a whole journey and no one can take credit, but I'm happy with what we ended up with. And I'm so happy to have you here today. Thank you for joining us. My pleasure. So when we have guests on, we obviously like to talk about the project that they're promoting, but also a little bit about how they got into the genre and filmmaking in general. And just in doing my little bit of research, I was reading up on on your time in school and I was reading that originally you were studying archaeology. So I was just curious what inspired that interest and then what inspired you to switch to directing and screenwriting instead? Well, the the truth of the matter, now that I can be honest with myself, first of all, is that archaeology came directly from Indiana Jones. <laughs> and uh, and eventually I realized that what I wanted to do was uh, not to be Indiana Jones, but to make Indiana Jones. So <laughs> so that's how it was transplanted from one to the other. Do you feel like that, that background of study influences the way you you look at film do you take like a history-minded view of film itself I don't think so because the and I do love history and uh and when I when I go into a project that has to do with it and I just delivered a draft of um of a western uh and it's it's fascinating to go down that path but I found often enough and this is going to be uh 
a very, you know, the, the, the reason for endless arguments that I've had, I find that extensive research for me as a writer is a very dangerous path because you become so excited with the stuff that you're finding in, in your research that is completely lateral to the center of the story you're telling that, that it can be seducing and take you away from what you originally wanted to tell. And it happens a lot to me that, uh, that I, years ago I was writing a, a script uh, that took place uh, during World War II. And uh, the main character was an American soldier. And uh, I, doing that research, I found about prisoner camps in China, um, that the Japanese prisoner camps that conducted horrendous human experiments. And we never hear, of, I love stuff that we don't often hear of. And suddenly that was a big part of my script. And it took me a couple of years of drafts to realize that that was a different movie. And, uh, and, and, and I, I should just drop the shiny little object and go with the story that I wanted to tell. And that happens every single time. So in this Western, I'm, I'm doing my research and I, I start going deep into the Mexican-American war. And there's so much stuff we don't know in there and it and it starts becoming taking play taking more and more space in the script and if there's this entire curve where i go full history and eventually i kick history out and i go full story again it's the difference between history and story and i think i've done that in my life many times so starting with picking one career and then going for the other but we find repeating the same mistakes over and over again i think <laughs> As long as you learn from the mistakes and you grow having had the experience, that's all that matters. I always say that, that the, the, the thing we learn by mistakes is to, when we make them again, to go, oh, I already made this one. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I find. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah that one. I know that one. Yeah, I know hi, that again. feeling well. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> when, uh, when you got into filmmaking then did you ever kind of envision a very particular path for yourself as far as you know the type of film you were going to specialize in the genre because some of your other features they aren't horror a lot of them are, are comedies so did you always picture yourself as being a comedy director well no actually you know i remember being in film school and um and uh, all my work in film school was very dark and 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 uh and very geeky and more magical. And um, and at some point, and I was looking at all the all the other f student films around me, and uh, and I was like, nobody's making comedy. That's so strange because you're intense and you're young and you have all these important things to say. And uh, and I was like, but comedy is awesome. It would be, can you imagine writing comedy? Well, <laughs> eventually, what happened is um, Mexican cinema had disappeared. Uh, for many, many years. And not until we had multiplexes back in Mexico, there was a space for Mexican cinema to try to compete a little bit with, uh, with the output from especially the U.S. And uh, the one thing that exploded and, and worked for Mexican cinema as a comeback was comedy. And it makes sense. I think uh, humor is a very peculiar cultural thing. And, uh, and we love to see our particular brand of humor. In, in what we consume. So comedies have started to work and I, and I have a knack. I love it. And, uh, and I can't stop myself from, from being goofy 
ever in life. But uh, but even when I go dark, there's usually um, a moment or two of levity. And even Tigers, which is deals with such dark, serious subject matter, there is there is a lot of comedy in it. I can't help myself. So I went into comedy. It was what what worked and what I could sell at that point. And uh, and I got a certain name. Uh, but eventually, you know, this this geek and and this huge fan of horror and science fiction comic books wanted to come out and uh, and tigers was the way to do it having had experience in both genres because i feel like this is a question that does get asked pretty often what do you find more difficult nailing a scare or nailing a laugh they're pretty much the same and here's the thing i think that as different as those two genres feel they're not. Uh, first of all, they're the two toughest. I, and, and, and usually the two that get least recognition. You know, comedies are not taken seriously. As, and, and you just have to look at the history of awards, you know, in that sense. And, uh, and the same happens with, with horror. Not until recently. We, we we're having this revival and it, it in order to be taken seriously now it's it's called which we all resent the lovers of the genre uh prestige horror like <laughs> what is that yeah. but anyways so to to achieve uh an honest to god a laugh out uh, moment and to achieve a true chilling scare you're you're trying to to poke your audiences deep in the guts is a visceral reaction. It's not a cerebral reaction. So it's, 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 it's instinctual and it's similar in a way. Um, but, and the other thing that I, that I found and I've always said is they're very related in the sense that if you get a horror movie wrong, you're going to end up with a comedy. And if you get a comedy wrong, you're going to end up with a horror movie. So they're pretty much the same. Okay, I'm getting a huge kick out of that because it's so true. It's true. I'm, I'm like a little bit obsessed with the through line between comedy and horror. And for all the reasons you said, like that visceral connection that they have with the audience that other genres often strive for, but can't quite get there. Completely. Uh, but the acting is often a very different thing between those two genres. Did you notice a difference in terms of directing your actors? Well, uh, here's the deal with, with how I approach uh, directing is I, I am a massive believer in the straight performances. And, and if you saw Tigers, you saw it. I was, I was striving to get performances from these kids that do not feel like performances that uh, I was trying to, get across a feeling of, of almost a war documentary and that the reactions were real. And we went for that to the point that the kids didn't know the script. They, uh, they never read a single page of it and we shot chronologically. So they were discovering the events as we were shooting them. So many of the reactions you see in the movie are first impressions of what happens to the characters and they're real. And I believe I, I do the same in comedy in, in the, the type of comedy I like to direct is the one where the characters are 
necessarily suffering horribly. The more the character suffers, the funniest the comedy is. The worst time they're having, the better time we are having. And uh, and at these, what I always go with with my comedy actors is you need to be mis- you need you need to go to this place of true misery and true suffering for us to laugh very honestly otherwise it's never going we're not going to defend ourselves from the horror you're going through with laughter if you don't go through horror to that that said directing fear uh or you know probably acting fear i wouldn't know but Getting an actor to a place where they can portray true fear is the toughest thing I've ever seen or asked an actor do. You can you can fake many many uh, emotions, and you can you can go technical and not method with a lot of emotions. With fear is different. You can you can go to the physical events of fear, which is you breathe fast. You shake, but it's still not going to come across as fear. You, in my experience, you have to be really, truly scared for the audience to go, oh, that that character is actually scared. And then I can be scared. And uh, and again, the, the two things that have to be real when, when you say action for the movie to work is laughter. You know, when a character bursts out laughing and it's fake is one of the most painful things to watch. It has to be an actual uh, laugh. And the same with fear. It has to be, they have to be actually scared, which was an entire adventure with children to get them, you know, you're not supposed to scare children. And yet you need them to be scared in the scene. And uh, and hopefully you're not going to damage anybody's psyche through this process in a way that they're going to hate you for the rest of their lives, you know? So that balance of getting the kids to a place where they could be actually truly scared. But then when I said cut, they could stop being scared and not have nightmares. That's, those are things that they don't teach you in film school, let me tell you. <laughs> So over the course of that process, what are kind of the tips and tricks you picked up in order to make sure you were doing just that with them? Well, the only thing that worked is um, I had to transit through the emotions with them, which is not something I had to do with trained actors before that. Um, So not only for fear, but for rage and for grief which and I go through those in the movie with the children they they would go there if you were there to catch them so um for fear for example I would you know take the hand of my my young actress Paola Lana is her name uh, she portrays Estrella in the movie and she was 11 at the time and um and she knew you know that this is what's going to to give her a tool to to give it on the set and we would find a corner in the location where we were a dark place and we would huddle in a corner and i would make horrible voices that would scare the hell out of me to start with and you know it's just because guys come on let's be honest you go into the dark room and you start making sinister noises after a while you're going to be scared we've all done it (laughs) 
and uh, and I would be scared, and and she would feel that, and she would go there with me, and we would both be two silly girls terrified in the corner of our room, and there was a crew, a movie crew outside, but we would allow ourselves to go there, which is a thing that you don't do as an adult, and I and I had to find that place in myself, and then once we found it, I would take her hand and go, you have it, and she would say yes, and I would say okay now. Close your eyes, keep it in, close your eyes, and take her back to the set with her eyes closed. Have everybody quiet, set her in the set, let go of her, and say action. And then she could access that, that emotion. And then when I said cut, I would be like, are you fine? Yes, I'm fine. And she had nightmares the first week. And, uh, and I felt very responsible. So I had to have a long conversation about the difference between what we were creating and pretending on the set and the fact that ghosts were real as long as we were on the set and I said action. But when I said cut, they were not real. And 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 the ability to to conjure them back for the next take. And it it's it it happened. It was so interesting. At the end of the shooting, I didn't need to go to no dark room with her. We would be standing in the middle of the set as we were ready to do the shot. I I would just, you know, put my arm around her shoulders, ask her to close her eyes, ask her to take a deep breath and whisper a little voice from the mother and she would go there and I would be able to do the scene. That was amazing. And that's something I saw them getting to that place that I've seen trained actors struggle with. The fact that that the the emotion ends when you said cut and there's a real world outside and be able to transit between those two. And I think it was done in part because of the amazing trust kids are ready to put on you once they decide that you're okay and you're for real and you're taking care of them and you're willing to go there yourself. So you mentioned before that you kind of like to keep them on their toes by not giving them pages beforehand. But does that limit the amount of takes you're able to get? Is it, is there a point where then they're so familiar with material that you just have to move on? Oh yeah. Well, you can't move on if you don't have the take. That's the thing, you know, and, and the magic of, of wait, what you get it once or twice and around take eight or nine, it wears off. They're kids, you know. So, um, so we would find tricks together. It was such an interesting process that, you know, someone would be very angry. Perhaps not even on on the first one when they. Sometimes it was the shock of the of the news, and sometimes it would take them a little while to go oh to find the full expression of that emotion, but then it would wear out, and it would be like you know when when they were not hitting that emotional mark after a while and they knew they knew immediately and the beauty of it is at some point we had a shorthand where i could simply look up from the monitor and they would look me in the eye and they would be like yeah i know <laughs> let's do it again these are kids that had no acting experience before it was amazing and so eventually either i would say come on let's let's talk a little or they themselves would be like uh you know let's talk let's find out something and we would step out of the set and, and have a little chat of what can we do to help you here? You know, and I, I do remember, for example, uh, working with a, um, the young man that, that 
portrayed Shine. His name is Juan Ramon. And, um, and I was asking for him, this is a very tough kid. And there's one scene where Estrella ca uh, catches him with a tear in his eyes because he's thinking about his, uh, his mother who he lost. And, uh, and the actor himself um, has lost both his parents which I understand because uh, the same thing happened to me uh, in different, you know, his parents and mine were both in, in for natural causes, but, uh, but it's still, uh, it's a tremendous experience. And of course it's a lot fresher for him than me, but he knew that I had that experience. So he would ask me to be able to use it. You know, he would say, what makes you sad about not having that mom and dad? And I would be very honest with him and say, you know, you know what really gets to me? The fact that they're never going to see, be able to see this movie we're making right now. And as I was saying it, I would get emotional and he would pick up on that and, and take that emotion that I was going through myself and work with it. So you develop this, this give and take mechanism um, where often enough I had, I had to dig in those emotions myself which is something that you're not supposed to do when you direct because chances are you're a terrible actor i am uh, but i was not acting for them i would never do that i was finding the emotion and the true actual emotion and offering it to them which again is something that they don't uh, teach nor in film school nor in therapy let me tell you <laughs> You know, you're going into, let me look into my drawer of emotions that I don't want to deal with right now. Hey, here's a horrible trauma. Do you want it? <laughs> so um, it ended up being beautifully therapeutic, you know, I think. And it was great to see these kids dissecting these emotions of their, their own to see what worked and going through them when usually they don't. And many of them came from environments where it's not nurtured, that exploration of emotions, you know? So I think it was, it was very positive for everyone involved. Scary, but, but intense and beautiful. The way you talk about working with child actors is so lovely and beautiful. And obviously that is not the reputation of working with child actors in the film industry. Was there, was this a project that was like hard to pitch people? Did you get a lot of like, no, that's dark and way too many kids? Oh yeah. I mean, the dark part for sure. Um, you know, movies with kids. Yeah. Everybody wants to, to see one and put them out there, especially if it's for kids. This movie is with kids, but not for kids. That was very confusing. It, it's a story about children, but not for children. Um, and, and, bad things happen in this movie and uh, and that's a big rule in in cinema that that nothing bad can happen to the pets or the kids right so um so it was tough that said uh, nobody questioned that i could find or direct the kids or direct the performances which i found interesting because i was terrified myself as 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 happens you're pitching something as like oh my god i got it we're gonna find them they're out there and it, meanwhile the inner voice was like i want to see that i want to see you finding not one not two but five kids 
that can give this ultra real performances and uh, and that you can get those performances out of them because you you don't do this girl <laughs> you direct actors that are trained and uh, my last experience with children was when i was very young i directed uh, a bunch of segments for sesame street the mexican version and that was fun but it's a very different tone than what i was going <laughs> for here so you know you fake it until you make it that's how you do it you pretend that you know what you're doing. I don't want to jump ahead so far, but I am curious what happened and what was going through your mind when you finished the film. Cause I know you had a very difficult time kind of getting it placement on the festival circuit. And I, for the life of me, just, I can't understand it. I, I can't put myself in the shoes of a programmer who watches the screener and says, this is not worthy of my film festival. So what was it like when you started to get those rejections? Were, were you truly shocked? I was uh, shocked is a big word because it would mean that you were that sure about your own work and you're never that. You're never that. It doesn't matter. I mean, you shouldn't. You should not. You should not. I think that you should ever always question how good it was and how much better it could have been or, you know, otherwise you become complacent. But it, what happened is um, I finished the movie and, uh, and it was a long post-production process. We didn't have, we had very little money again, because it was a hard pitch and, um, and we had visual effects and, and the sound design, uh, was made by the same sound designer that worked with um, with Guillermo del Toro in in Pensaber and then in in Hellboy, and, and that makes every single uh, Iñárritu movie. So we wanted to wait for his window because we were not paying the big box. It was about passion, so we had to wait for a lot of incredibly talented people to make time for the movie, the composer, all of them. And, and we had a very long post-production process, an entire year. And when the movie was done, we, me and the producing team, we felt that we had, a, you know, not a genius movie, but a thing that felt unique enough that it was approaching a subject matter in a particular way, which was going into, into the ravages of the drug war in Latin America and what it makes happen around children uh, but doing it through um, horror and a ghost story and magical realism and we hadn't seen that mixed so so we thought that was unique enough to perhaps get us in the in the festival circuit and um, and we got rejection after rejection for an entire year we applied to Sundance to South by Southwest Tri Tribeca Berlin uh, certain sections of Cannes, uh, Venice, San Sebastian, all of the festivals. And we got rejection after rejection, after rejection, after rejection. And um, it, you know, when you get two or three, you might think that someone ha might have missed whatever is special with the movie. But when you get the sixth and the seventh, you start questioning if the movie has any value and if you as a filmmaker are actually on the right path, maybe I should have gone back to archaeology school. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, but I would at the same time, um, 
the team was sending the movie out to to producers in LA and and the response was amazing people were touched by the movie and they wanted to sit down and wanted to meet me and they wanted to know when what festival was it going to open and I was you know just dancing around that like hey we're trying to figure I had no, nobody was taking it but I I had this feeling that it was still connecting with people I couldn't understand what the hell was going on to this date, I suspect the movie was not seen by the by the screening processes because later we got invited to some of the festivals that got reject we had got rejected from, and I would say, "Hey guys, but you rejected us," and they would be shocked, and I would be like, "Here's a letter." <laughs> so, and they were honestly coming back and saying, "I never saw it," which I hope. Um, invited to a more careful screening process, you know, I hope. Huh. I mean, yeah. that, that sounds like the only logical response to me, which, uh, yeah, it's like, it, it's upsetting to hear something like that. But at the same time, it, it's encouraging that something like this wasn't kind of pushed out of a lineup like that, because I also feel like another thing that we're constantly dealing with is, whether or not you should go down the route of doing something completely different that will make it stand out on a film festival lineup or going with the trend and giving them what the whole industry and the box office for that matter seems to want at the time. It's, it's, it's either or in the spectrum. Um, and, and throughout the process, the movie uh, of making the movie and post-producing the movie, a lot of voices around you go into, you know, it doesn't feel indie enough for the festival circuit. There is this, this uh, very successful way to make certain type of film in Latin America that are adored in the festival circuit. And, and the movies are supposed to feel rough and half-baked. And, and there's a certain type of performance that, that is adored and, is, and it's, it feels a lot more amateurish. And sometimes I suspect that, that the directors actually could do better than that but that's the tone that is fashionable uh, or was at the time in the festival circuit and i and i did get a couple of notes of it feels too well done which was like wait wait <laughs> what you want me to make it shittier so it's accepted and on the other hand <clears throat> for commercial and industrial and as a horror movie it was like uh, it feels too indie it feels too raw. It feels too real. So I was, my feeling is my movie is falling between those two lands. You know, it's, it doesn't feel raw enough for the festival circuit, for the prestige circuit, uh, circuit, um, circuit, but it doesn't feel polished enough or shiny or pretty enough for the, for the mainstream circuit. So, and that has happened because I love to tackle movies that are neither or, but both, and maybe even something of their own. That's what I strive for. Often enough, I have run into that wall. It felt recognizable. But I was convinced that particularly the fact that it didn't completely belong here or here, but was its own animal, was what it was going to give it a chance. And I was right. When audiences keep, and they beautifully keep coming back to the movie and, and being so impressed by it and, and beautifully 
putting it out in social media and coming out and saying it, it's because it's unexpected. So, you know, there it is. I do believe after this experience that if you're stubborn enough, <laughs> the good guys can win. You know, I, I was very, very, very happy. I'm still very happy. And there is days that I still can't believe how gorgeous the journey has been with Tigers. Well, you are, it is finally coming to DVD and Blu-ray and Steelbook and all that, which yay. But uh, it, you know, went to Shutter at first. And that's, uh, are you finding as a filmmaker that streaming is maybe these new outlets are the place where the films that don't fit in those traditional models have a better shot? Well, first of all, it gives them a life. <clears throat> the movie had its theatrical release in in the fall of 2019. And that was beautiful because even though it was playing in one theater in this city and then going to, you know, it, and it's very small and very specific, it got, um, it, it continued this buzz that it started in, in the genre festival circuit because once it was taken by one, it was taken by all of them. It was great. But uh, but then it went into a, a theatrical release, and the theatrical release gave us um, access to reviews, which matters, and and it gets you to have a certain score in Rotten Tomatoes that matters, and um, and and for you know some some big names in general to be curious and watch it, and and then go on social media about it. All of that helps. That said, uh, then the movie went on Shudder. And Shudder, from the moment they saw it at Fantastic Fest where it opened, they stepped up and said, we want this movie. And it was a very long journey for uh, for us to secure the rights because uh, the rights were in part for the distribution in the, in the U.S. and English-speaking territories, were in part given because I, I, I needed to take all the money I could. So there were so, some pre-sold things and Shudder needed universal rights. So that negotiation took forever, but eventually it dropped in, in, by the end of, of 2019. And it's beloved in the platform. And uh, nobody has championed the movie the way that Shudder did. And what is gorgeous about it is that once your theatrical run is over, and it doesn't matter if the movie is a massive hit. Theatrical runs are short. There, you know, when in in the seventies and early eighties, you could have a movie who, which would play for a year, <laughs> that doesn't exist. But it exists in a streaming. And every time that someone goes on Twitter or an Instagram or and saying I love this movie, and someone else sees it, they can simply look for it and, and, and access the movie. So the movie never stops going strong. However, the fact that you have access to physical release is like the final incarnation that is gorgeous because it allows for whatever filmmaker dreams of, which is all the extras. Making a movie is such a tough process and you work for so long chasing a vision that you end up with this massive cachet of visual references, set photographs, uh, set designs, casting calls. When I, we, when we made the, we worked on the making off of the movie, I didn't want a five minutes talking heads as usually is made. I wanted a feature of how we made this movie because it was kind of a miracle and how I work with the kids and 
So we made 45 minutes of how we made a movie. And then when it opened in Toronto Film Festival um, in 2019 for the commercial run, Guillermo del Toro, who has championed the movie, and it's been amazing, uh, presented the movie in Toronto and, and made a Q&A with me, which I felt that after that I could die a happy person. <laughs> but it's an hour of a, of a joy of an interview uh, where we had a lot of fun and we had a lot of laughter. And, uh, and that's part of the, of the extras of this. So, so it's, it's the perfect way to close a tough, complicated adventure that hit all of the things that you wanted. It was finally accepted in the festivals. It had its theatrical run. It is in a streaming. And now you can have the steelbook with all those luxury little gifts. And then I'm done with Tigers. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> then that paves the way to future opportunities and wonderful collaborations. Like I'm assuming the Western that you were just referencing was your werewolf Western, right? It is. It is. No, I'm writing another Western. No, no, no. It's only one Western. <laughs> it's um, it's a werewolf Western. And um, Del Toro, after watching the movie, which um, from the moment I was writing the script, I wanted him, I thought he was going to respond to this material. And uh, and it was impossible to get to him. Um, he's, of course, one of the most busy uh, filmmakers out there. And, uh, you know, when I was writing, I remember like, well, you know, I'm Mexican. He's Mexican because there's so few of us. <laughs> <laughs> to be that hard i know people that knows him it was impossible and um and even with the movie finished it was i i could not get him to watch and i didn't know him and not until the movie started getting the amazing reviews and and the comparisons were constant in a good light i was i was kind of worried because the movie does this thing that del toro does so beautifully which is it, it deals with a very harsh reality through the eyes of children and, uh, and the horrors, the supernatural horrors that surround childhood. And that's El Toro, right? So, of course, the comparisons uh, arise, but the, the greedy nature of the movie, the, where the movie is more city of God or is more um, that Latin American cinema, uh, is, is what sets it apart from... Guillermo's work and um, an influence. But Guillermo finally was curious enough, saw it, and as I suspected, responded to it and became a champion. And, and, and they started talking about the movie. It was beautiful. And eventually he reached out and said, I'm going to produce a movie that you write and direct. And uh, we started looking at options. And he came to me with this idea uh, for, a, for a werewolf western. And I loved it because who who would give you know who would think of a of a werewolf western directed by a Mexican woman director? It's such an odd combination. I would definitely want to see that, and and I always want to make the movies that I want to see. So it is it is very dark. It is very violent. It's a lot of fun, and uh, I've heard that. <laughs> The, the second draft, just at the beginning of, of the lockdown, Guillermo is figuring out himself because his own production of Nightmare Alley was halted um, through this. So he's yoggling through that. And I'm waiting on my notes. 
curious, what is it about werewolf and Western where one kind of brings something new out of the other? Why that combination? I think that there are several things. One is there's there's something about the 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 white uh, young America trying to take over a wild older uh, America, you know, a wild older continent, native continent, and uh, and trying to to crush something more mysterious and more mystical uh, with the weight of what's civil and uh, and what's west what the western civilization implies you know and and under that there is something darker that you can't repress and uh, and the clash between those two is what makes the western i think and what makes the werewolf too so it's a beautiful marriage there the werewolf genre is interesting because a lot of horror genres you look at the classic monsters you can look at vampires or zombies and there's just countless great movies made about those creatures not so with werewolves there's a very limited amount so what is sort of your take on like the werewolf genre in general and what in general and what you want to bring to it and what excites you about that opportunity well you know you're completely right that there's a bunch of, of werewolf movies, indeed. But uh, very few of them are really good. You know, a lot of them are a lot of fun. Yeah. But very few of them are really good and even less scary. You know, because there's something innately, naturally scary about a, a man or a woman that is trying to contain a monster and then that monster exploding. That's that, And that's what I... I'm fascinated with how you can't repress what is what you really are, what's inside you. Um, but that said, it can be incredibly goofy to to you know turn into a large dog. So <laughs> it's tough. And there's amazing examples of, of when it's well done, like Ginger Snaps or like the American Werewolf in London. Uh, or howling, I think, but uh, but it is a tough genre, and you have to be very careful to not for it to not be stupid, downright stupid. And and the stupid is good, as I was saying. You know, I love comedy. I don't want to make a comedy out of this one. <laughs> I definitely <laughs> don't want to make a comedy out of this one. So um, so it is it is a challenge. It it is a scary in the way that that uh, Tigers was a scary because it was. All based on kids, um, I had to go into visual effects, which is not something that Latin American cinema is particularly known for. All of that seemed so daunting and and so risky. But if you're not going down risky, I think it's not worth exploring. You have to be, you know, David Bowie um, used to say, and I love that quote, that uh, you have to feel as an artist uh, a little bit like when you're going into the ocean and and the place where your toes stop feeling the sand, that is the right place to tell a story. And definitely, you know, I'm I'm I stopped feeling the sand a while ago. So this is a good place. 
I'm so excited for you. Another thing I love about what you do, even beyond what you've given to us on the screen, is your presence on social media. So (laughs) why is it important to you to be such an active member of the community on Twitter? And uh, when the time comes, are you eager to kind of jump into that community further by going to some of the horror conventions? Well, yeah, no, definitely. It it was something that was not... um, um, able to do before the movie got taken over by the the horror festivals which i definitely adore and i love the teams and it was a great experience so that has to happen about social media is i i have i like like all of us i think i have a a love-hate relationship like because those are all my relationships i love hate relationships anyway but uh but the truth about Twitter is it has been incredibly incredibly generous to me uh, I I think I got to Del Toro f- um, yes in part because the movie was was creating a buzz but uh, but uh, I think the fans of the movie that manifested in social media and that would say I, I love the movie it feels a little bit like a greedier Del Toro has he seen it I would go like nope but you can tag him and and tell him, <laughs> and and people did, you know. And I think it had an effect. Um, then, of course, uh, part of what propelled the movie at the start of it was the fact that Stephen King uh, on Twitter went and 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 said beautiful things about the movie, and and that was very meaningful at the beginning. And through Twitter too, I was able to reach uh, Neil Gaiman, who is my absolute third god in this journey and 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 have him watch the movie and i knew he was going to respond to it as he did so um so it it, it allowed me to first follow and then uh put out what i was doing for these gods in uh, in a way and then the other thing is is it's it's a way it's a beautiful way for people who appreciate the movie and connect uh, with it to say hey uh, I hear you I saw what you did there and and that justifies the entire adventure of the rejections and everything when you when you realize someone in Brazil or in Amsterdam or in Boston or or you know in Scotland they come out and said your movie touched me and and it's gorgeous. I love it. Oh, for what it's worth, all of that love that was directed at you, I feel like you put back out there because you're. It feels Thank like you're you. always sharing stuff and celebrating other people's work too. And that that's what makes that community so special to me is that it keeps going around and around, and we're all there to lift each other up and enjoy this stuff together. I completely. I mean, I'm I, first and foremost, I'm a fan girl. So, <laughs> and I'm a firm believer that. Um, you know, I I would never go on social media to say X movie or X book. It's just like it didn't matter to me. Why, why would you when you could rather use that space and that moment to to praise something that you're excited about, right? So and 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 the gorgeous is because of the incredible moment we're living with January, the amount of amazing shit we have around is crazy. <laughs> So I rather have to restrain myself because it's going to otherwise it's going to 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 feel like I like everything 
<laughs> and then it doesn't matter what you like, you know. So I have to re to refrain myself from 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 reading a lot about this stuff. And with the stuff that I'm not excited about, I you know I just life is too short. Even when days are endless, like right now, <laughs> and uh, and if you're not enjoying an experience reading or or watching, just to stop, stop. What's something else? There's a lot of incredible stuff there. And, uh, and and what is amazing is is how many times I've went out to to say something nice about the work of someone else and how many times people that I admire and respect like well these guys but um, uh, say um, um, Joe Dante went out a couple of days ago to talk about tigers and uh, uh, a bunch of, of of incredible horror masters have done it and so it, it makes you want to make a next one that once again um is liked and appreciated by the people who taught you how to tell a scary story so Beautiful. say you're you're a really big fangirl in general so what have you been fangirling over lately? Is, is there any new thing out there that's really caught your eye that you want to celebrate? I'm, think, I'm, I'm in a spree of all things right now. And, uh, you know, I, I, I had this moment where I was watching every every single new series and, and, uh, and it started to create a little noise in my head. And I was like, I think it would be very helpful to to go into all things that I loved as a young person before even I was a storyteller, a professional one. I've always been a storyteller. And and see through the eyes of someone that has gone through the, the process of making movies. So I, I've been going through old treasures. I just rewatched um, uh, Blade Runner for the first time in ages. And that's, I'm amazed because, you know, when you watch all the stuff, a lot of it, you still feel the love and you go like, oh, that feels old. <laughs> oh, wow, that felt old. But Blade Runner doesn't. It's it's crazy how how on point of so many things that are we're going through right now, it touches on. Um, but that is the old. I'm, I'm finishing right now, uh, right now, uh, the new book by Stephen King. The um, uh, It's called If It Bleeds. It has a sequel to The Outsider, uh, which really felt like a very good adaptation of, of King's work. And this, there's so much. When, when you have Kubrick doing some of your work, it's very tough to say that you have a, a, a good um, adaptation, but The Outsider is good. And, and the book is really amazing. It is four short novellas. And uh, there's particularly one, the second one called The Life of Chalk, that is so unexpected. I mean, of how that man with so many, so many, so many books can still completely surprise us. How does he do that? I just, I can't imagine. I'm, um, I finished reading a comic book called My Favorite Thing is Monsters by Emil Faris. It's gorgeous. It's gorgeous. It's about a, a young fangirl who is obsessed with the the Wolfman and the Invisible <laughs> Man, 
and vampires and uh, and there's a bed in the building she lives on and she starts trying to break it apart with the tools that she's learned in horror you know um i uh let me think I'm I'm reading the work of an Argentinian horror writer named uh, Mariana Enriquez, whose new novel is astounding, but um, it's still not translated to English. It's coming at the end of the year. In the meantime, she has a collection of short stories called What We Lost in the Fire, and they're horror stories set in the harsh reality of Latin America, which is my favorite territory. And it's scary as hell. So it's beautiful. Um, I just saw The Platform. What the hell? I loved it. I love that movie. It surprised me so much. It's so we good. The Platform. I, I, would, I would say we probably talked about The Platform just as much as we've talked about Tigers. And probably also Sea Fever at this point, too. Yeah. <laughs> very topic lately. You, we had this... This is going to sound terrible, but it, it's going to sound terrible. But I'm going to go there. In Mexico, when when I grew up, my father was a Spanish, so Spanish culture is is very central to who I am and very dear to me. But it's a love hate relationship, like everything in my life, right? So, and when I grew we grew up, um, we had when a Star Wars would play on TV, it was the Spanish dubbed version. Which was hilarious. I mean, you you would have, uh, you know, C-3PO, and because the Spanish are 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 so correct in the way they use language, it would be C-3PO. Hola, soy C-3PO. We were Mexicans, kids. We'd go for ages into, hey, look, Skywalker. ¿Qué estás haciendo? So the the accent is sometimes tough, um, for genre, for us. However. Some of the best horror and science fiction and uh, genre directors out there are Spanish. But when I when I played the trailer for the platform, I had this little moment of them going "Estás en el hoyo" that I was like, I cannot, I will not be able to watch this. <laughs> but then when all the reviews started coming on, I was like, no, no, I I will. It's amazing. It's such a simple concept, and you know what I love? I love that he never explains why, where how because it really doesn't make sense but you don't need it to make sense you just need to know the rules that this guy has to go through that's it you're in the hole like himself you're in for the adventure it's amazing it's so well executed the performance is everything i loved it i was wrong about no it's fantastic (laughs) yeah it's definitely a a recent favorite for everyone over a collider yeah Uh, we can't let you go over today because I know you have a very busy yeah. schedule, but I've kind of <laughs> asked you one of our usual go-to questions, which is what are you uh, watching or reading in genre right now? But we do have one other go-to, and I'm going to give that one to Haley. Well, first of all, incredible answer to the last one. I feel like that's one of the best, like, I'll take notes later and go look all of that up. That was very <laughs> insightful. Thank um, you. But the very important final question is, do you have any pets? Oh, well, well, <laughs> because I was talking about them yesterday. Um, I had, I, as an adult, I grew up with dogs. Um, my father was uh, a, a hunter. 
which, you know, now I, as an adult, I stopped eating meat because I love animals so much. And animal pain is something I, I can't endure. And I think it's related to the fact that you rebel against the way you were brought up, you know? So my father was also, uh, I was raised by my father because my mother died when I was very young, I was eight. So my dad raised us and I love my dad dearly before everybody else knows us. We, I, we, I love the man and, and he, I think he didn't do a complete shit job in bringing me up. <laughs> so, uh, but, but he, he, even though he had dogs and loved them, he hunted, which for me has always been this strange thing of either you love animals or you kill them for fun, but different generations. And, um, so my relationship with animals was complicated because of that, although I adore them. And my sister became a veterinarian to that point. And, you know, she also doesn't eat meat now. Um, but uh, I didn't have dogs or, or cats or anything as an adult because I used to live in very small apartments and it's complicated. And But eventually I couldn't resist it. And I rescued um, a chocolate Labrador that is one of those animals that in the stores um, they can't sell because she had a big scar, a gash. And you see the puppy getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger in the box. And you know that eventually. So I found out and I kept in touch. And when they called me to say it's not going to sell and we're going to. And I was like, just I, I'll get the puppy. So I got her. And she spent 14 years with me. And uh, her name was Kanika. And uh, and she was the most obnoxious, uh, unsufferable lady. I mean, she didn't like to be pet, but sometimes she would feel like come to you and put her head on your knee. Don't touch me much. And but she was adorable and I loved her dearly. And I had to put her down. She was 14, almost 15 at the time, um, near the time that I wrote Tigers. And, uh, and the reason I wrote Tigers in part was because my entire life was falling apart. I hadn't shoot a movie in seven years. My latest project had fallen apart. I went to a breakup, my father died, and then I had to put down the dog. And I, I had nothing. I, I, and I realized that one thing I could do was make a movie. And I wrote Tigers from that place of pain. And I thought I was never going to have another dog because I had that dog and it was so special. And eventually my veterinarian sister called me and said, hey, I had this other chocolate Labrador that someone found on the street and we can't find the owners. Can you foster it? And I was, I know what you're doing. And it's not <laughs> going to happen. It's not going to happen. And I got the dog. It was male. He was, his name was Chulo, which in Spanish, in Spanish means gorgeous and pimp. And he was both. <laughs> and he was with me for five years and I put it, down uh last year and i miss him miserably oh. and i so those were my two chalk labs my rescues and um and i keep saying i'm never going to have another one that was enough but i know myself so <laughs> <laughs> right now i have no pets we've all said that before yeah <laughs> like, like we say i'm never going to fall in love again yes. yeah <laughs> i know that 
<laughs> I feel like apparently being a pet lover and a genre lover just goes hand in hand. So it's meant to be. <laughs> it's meant to be, but then it's so mysterious why we killed so many animals in the movies, right? You know, in the in the fiction, in the fiction. Yes. But uh, but it's amazing. You know, people used to some some fans in Mexico used to make the 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 fun note that if it's not a proper Isa Lopez movie if an animal is not killed in it. And uh, I don't think I killed any animals and tigers. No, I kill a lot of people, but not animals. I keep, you know, children die in tigers, but animals are fine. I think I broke that spell. But I find that it's so compelling and shocking the death of an animal. It's such a dramatic moment. So I used to put it in a lot of my scripts because it's it's a core shaker for me. Yeah, I think we feel the exact same way. Yeah. Uh, we gotta let you go and you know continue promoting your movie. That's that's another thing that I think you've done extremely well. Is like you have been out there pushing this thing through every single phase of the process, back to the beginning when you were first making it to trying to get it on the festival circuit to when it finally did get a release, and now that we're getting it for at home viewing on May fifth. You can get it on DVD and Blu-ray Steelbook. So. Isa, thank you so much for spending some time with thank us today. Really my my it. pleasure to finally meet you guys and uh, and how much fun this was. Great. Thank you. All right, guys. That is it. You've all officially survived the witching hour. Napa know-how. This month, Napa's got all kinds of motor oil deals that can save you some serious cash. Like a five-quart jug of Napa Full Synthetic Motor Oil for just $16.49. With savings like that, you may start feeling like a VIP. But don't let it go to your head. These oil deals are for everyone. Quality parts, helpful people. That's Napa know-how. Napa know-how. General states pricing. Sales prices not include applicable state local taxes or recycling fees. Offer ends 831.20. It's that little chico pit bull, Mr. 305, better said Mr. Worldwide, and I'm here to tell you about my new podcast, From Negative to Positive, brought to you by my friends over at State Farm. I believe that to have success, you got to play the game, so that the game doesn't play you. You know, the biggest risk you take is not taking one. It's very important that you make sure that you make the most out of your money, especially when it comes to insurance. State Farm offers surprisingly great rates. They have great agents standing by helping you personalize your coverage. All this is backed up by award-winning, easy-to-use technology. It's a great price with an even greater service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.